I'm on my way to the polling place, the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine. It's late, it's almost 10 p.m., but the radio says the lines are still around the block and anyway, voting is going on all night, so there's no rush. I didn't really know what I was gonna tell you in this part, so I got some food and have been organizing my notes all afternoon. I wanna tell you about last week, but I can't. That's not gonna make any sense unless I go back further. So, I want to tell you about this time, uh, a few weeks back, that my worldview was completely shaken. Actually, that's a cowardly way of saying it. I'm going to tell you about the time, a few weeks back, when I felt the touch of God. But first, I'll go even further back than that, to the time when most of us think God left us. It started with an anomaly in the Southern Hemisphere. That's what they say, anyway. A large swath of the planet from Africa to South America, where the magnetic field had grown so weak, compasses didn't know where to point. They just either spun endlessly or, most commonly, they just stopped. Way above the Earth, satellites that crossed over this region had so little protection from solar and galactic radiation that their circuits would just get fried. A few years ago, uh, when we aggressively and rapidly restarted our manned space flight program, I remember they lost a ship up there, with a few people on board. Their systems went offline and they were just so close to the atmosphere that the gravity sucked them in at the wrong angle and that was that. I never really cared about any of this, mind you. I, I wasn't really paying attention to much of anything outside of my own little world. God, it's a wonder Christine stuck around as long as she did. (laughs) She was the one who cared. The louder the news got, the more the panic spread, the more I just shut off, shut it out, and shut myself down. God, how many years ago was this? (laughs) See, Christine worked at the university here in Aldwych. That's why we moved to this little nothing town. America's filled with college towns like this, towns that exist solely to support their university. Towns like New Haven to support Yale and Ithaca for Cornell. Well, Aldwych is here to support the Mars Center for Astrophysical Research and Application. Yeah, Aldwych is just another New England forest town. No, the real question is who's buying the first round, I asked her. She just smiled back at me. It was a pained smile. I've come to realize that Abigail passes a lot of judgment with a simple smile. I didn't like it. I took a big gulp of my whiskey concoction and slid the glass toward the bartender. He already had the bottle in hand. Do you want to go for a walk? She asked. In truth, I didn't know if I did. I wanted to be with her, sure I did, but I also needed to continue drinking because I really needed to be drunk. Abigail said something to the bartender, who then poured my drink into a foam cup with a lid and straw. Best of both worlds. She led me through the bar to the door leading to the back patio. The owner, my friend Lucas, tended to keep the lights as low as possible and the music as loud as possible to help obscure the exact number and nature of the clientele. It was early as we shuffled through, so the daytimers were still lounging. They were harmless, so Lucas mostly ignored them. The government paid their bills anyway, and it wasn't like there was a line to get in. 
When we got to the street, I noticed that Abigail was still dressed in the white suit she had worn to the funeral that day. Is it still the same day? It felt like it was a lot further in the past. It seemed too expensive and classy for a bar like this, but then again, so did she. As we walked, we didn't talk. I felt a strange feeling, something I don't think I had felt in a very long time. Guilt? Shame? I don't know. I had often felt bad about myself, sure. Who doesn't, right? But now I felt like I'd been caught cheating on a test, or... You know what? It's, it's that I felt like I had disappointed her. This woman I didn't even know, but who seemed to know me. She certainly knew some things about me. More than most. What else did she know? Anyway, I, I felt guilty that I had disappointed her. I'm not upset, if that's what you're thinking, she started. I knew you'd be here. How? I thought, I didn't even know I'd be here. Let me guess. When you left the funeral today, when you stepped out of my car, you had no intention of coming here. Am I right? She was. I felt like relaxing and being alone, I said. You're almost always alone, though, she replied. By choice, yes. Abigail stopped us beneath a streetlight. She looked into my eyes. It was an intense moment, but then I realized she was looking into my eyes. She was looking for signs of drug use. I could tell. I turned away. I like this place. It's easy. It's close. The owner's my friend. At this, she stopped. Peter died more than a month ago, Jack, she said. I just stared back at her, dumbfounded. She went on, I bought this place. We've seen each other here every night. I even let you back in after you made a scene at his wake. Do you remember any of that? I continued to just stare blankly back at her. I didn't remember the scene that I had made, but I did recall just then Abigail coming to my house and dropping off a large gift basket. Was that from the wake? It's okay that you forgot, she said. I think every time it comes up, you've been either way too drunk or way too high or both. So there was no chance of you being able to remember it long term. I just wanted to say it again now before you have any more. I... I... I stuttered. No idea what to say to any of this. I instinctively sucked at my to-go cup of liquor, the quadruple shot suddenly seeming not nearly big enough. I looked around anxiously. Where were we even standing? Just to the other side of the lamppost was a bench, a little parquette, I really didn't know this street at all. But I gestured, and we both sat down. I think we sat there for a while. It's a beautiful night, she eventually said. It's nice to see at least someone decorating for Christmas. She gestured at a house with a string of old-fashioned holiday lights. I thought it was freezing and actually thought the decorated house was in poor taste. How did he die? CO3, she said. I cringed when I heard this. I couldn't believe that he would have done it. Not to himself, not voluntarily. He and I used to have intense discussions about this. About how cowardly and stupid we thought it was. That it was better to go to the bitter end than to make this childish sacrifice. You see, when all this started to go down, maybe 20, 25 years ago? God, it's really been that long. Anyway, one of the ways that 
uh, quote, we all agreed, end quote, to manage the emotion of it all was to come up with a handful of rules, values, principles, I don't know, some say mantras, but basically just a handful of things to help guide us so that we didn't start pulling out each other's throats. Every country had a slightly different set. Some had more, like in Scandinavia. Some barely had any, like in the uh, any of the war-torn countries in the South. Where we are, of course, we value simplicity. So we have three. We call them the conventional orders, COs, which I think came from the the name of the event where it was proposed, the first convention on situational preparedness. I don't know, some such thing. The first one was the least controversial. Stop having children. Hey, the world's about to end. It'd be cruel to bring a kid into it. Besides, no one would have time to raise a kid because of conventional order number two, which was basically, well, its nickname is the Great Reorganization. And the basic idea was that everyone should have the right to change their jobs, their careers, if they wanted to. Basically a self-safety valve for society going through angst. At least you finally get to do whatever you want. The premise was simple enough, but it seems to actually have caused the most problems. I'll get into that more later. It's the third conventional order. That's, uh, that's what I want to talk about. It's the idea that suicide would be welcomed for anyone who wanted it. That it was to be publicly promoted as a perfectly natural, perfectly empowering way to manage, to cope, to deal with the stress of and fear for what was to come. Insurance companies were to pay out. All of the religious organizations had to basically change their own internal rules. I guess everyone's always had the right to do it, of course, but it's always been, and everywhere, it's always been shunned. It has to be, Christine used to say. For biological, for evolutionary reasons, suicide has to be shunned. Mm, She actively and loudly campaigned against adopting that. I was pretty indifferent, if I'm honest. At the time, I still believed most of this would all just blow over. But uh, needless to say, I've developed a great resentment toward anyone who chooses this. I didn't know then, sitting in the cold on that bench in early December, exactly why I felt the way that I did. I just knew that at that moment, if Lucas were still alive, I'd kill him. For what it's worth, Jack, Abigail said, I feel the same way. I mean, about the result of CO3. I greatly sympathize, empathize, really, but you and I have a lot in common in this regard. I don't have any fucking sympathy for them, I spat. I remember sucking at the last of my drink through that annoying straw, pissed off that I had gotten down so low, pissed that I wasn't in the bar where this wouldn't have been a problem. I think people are driven to it now because we've done away with any sense of hope for the future, she said. As soon as there's no hope left, well, there's no reason to go on. Look, can we go back? I'm going back, I said, stood up to start walking. I heard Abigail coming up behind me, hurrying, too. Her footfalls coming in a hurry. I felt ten feet tall, a man on a mission, 
I told myself earlier that I wanted to drink to calm down and relax, but now I wanted to be drunk to fuel this wave of energy, rage, this euphoria. I couldn't believe that she had said that, of all things. She was one of those deniers, the people who campaigned against the scientific evidence. The obvious observational facts. Since the first talk of this anomaly, evidence had mounted. Sure, there was debate, of course there was debate, but the scientific community is probably the only community that doesn't let opinion uh, seat in the debate. A lot of people didn't want planes falling from the sky, compasses spinning out of control, and millions of people being left without electricity and no chance of getting any more. None of us wanted the exponentially increasing cancer rates, weather that had become nearly impossible to predict, and even more animal species dying off at rates that, you know, human beings hadn't even seen. And we were really good at driving other animals to extinction where there had been no doubt, no confusion, whatever, where there had been complete consensus in the scientific community was that there was nothing we could do to stop any of it. That certainty was the only thing we could hold on to. With that certainty, humanity could finally see the future. Idiots like Abigail just made a terrible situation that much worse sowing doubt by spreading their lies to get them to lose their faith in science, in reality, ultimately in themselves. As far as I was concerned, if you couldn't rely on the scientific facts of this material world, then you couldn't rely on anything. Ah, God, I almost stormed back into that bar. Before I knew it, I was back in my chair, like I had never left, sipping on a new drink and a glass glass. The bar had filled up quite a bit since we had left. The night regulars. These were the low-level pushers. Back in the day, I remember CD bars where Coke dealers would come. They would act friendly. There'd be lots of handshakes and bundles of cash moved around. If you didn't know what was going on, you probably would have thought everyone was just really, really friendly and really excited to meet each other. Now, many of those same people still come, but it's more somber, more like an act of charity, gratitude. Virtually no one was selling Coke or uppers anymore. In today's world, no one wants to be hyper aware of it. Why would you want to be awake longer than you had to be? A guy I had known who had been a cop at one point before his family abandoned him. He had fallen apart, was now, I think, a caretaker at an abandoned school. Anyway, he had taken to selling his legally prescribed and mandated Proxlin. So I took a pill. But before I swallowed it, I took out my notebook and jotted down everything that had happened with Abigail that day. And that's how I've been able to tell you all this today with such narrative clarity. Because I don't really remember writing it. As I took the pill, next thing I remember, I was waking up on the floor in my living room, butted up against the couch, the doorbell ringing. At the time, of course, I remembered nothing at all of what had happened. I was fully dressed, still wearing my coat and gloves. I got to my feet, which felt warm and disgusting inside my still-laced boots. As I shuffled to the front door, I noticed that my vodka bottle was sitting perched on the couch above me. And that makes me chuckle now. And lo and behold, it was Abigail at the front door. I'm just going to pause here for a second. I don't want to give the impression that Abigail is the only person I know 
simply because I keep talking about her. I knew and know lots of people. I've just been ignoring most of them for several years now. But one thing is absolutely true. Abigail has been the only person repeatedly knocking on my door. I have to show you something. Road trip, she said. I was starting to recover some of the memories from the night before. Some of the things that had happened in the back alley. I was trying to remember if I had said anything that I needed to apologize for, or if it had all just been in my head. I agreed to go with her on one condition, that I could bring my medicinal vodka. She consented, but handed me a flask. She apologized for upsetting me, which I thought was strange, but I appreciated it. Most people don't apologize much anymore. As we drove, I didn't ask many questions. It was bright out and I had to squint. The flask was helping me, though. I get it, she started. With what's going on, it's hard, nearly impossible, to think that there could be more to it. That maybe it's not the end, or not the end that we think it is. At that moment, I remembered we had fought. Or I had fought, at any rate. I didn't want to fight again. We were well out in the country now. The empty fields had a patchy, thin layer of snow over most of them. The trees that lined the country road were barren. There weren't all that many farmhouses out here, and we turned down a laneway toward a very large one. The house was a Victorian that had an addition built onto the back of it, and what looked like a very modern, brand-new barn uh, running the length of it. What is this place? What are we doing here? I asked. Hopefully, I'm going to open up your mind just a little bit, Jack. I promise it won't hurt, and you'll be free to close it back up afterwards, and I'll drive you back to town and never bother you again, if that's what you'll want. The house, or manor, perhaps a more accurate term, it was quiet, um, but it was well lived in. There were books scattered, papers, art supplies everywhere, paint, lots of paint. I remember feeling a sense of oddness to it all because I didn't see a single screen. No televisions, no computers, no tablets. Oh, we have electricity. In case you were wondering, we just don't use all that much of it. Can I get you a coffee? I raised my hand to wave my flask at her, but at that moment, so far from my usual routine in town, which admittedly by now would have had me likely day drinking or passed out again, the, the thought of an old-fashioned coffee actually sounded kind of nice. Do you know how many times you black out? She asked. Oh, just once in a while, I replied. I think it's every time, Jack. It may have been better in the past, but it's been every time since I've known you. I've snickered at this, but she wasn't laughing. At that, I felt uncomfortable. You don't know how long we've known each other, do you? That stung. My body and soul, well, they, they stung. Because yes, it was completely true. And up until that moment, I had held out hope that it would never come up. The truth is, I've suffered blackouts from my using more frequently in the last oh, few years. 
God, saying it like that makes me sound like an addict, which I suppose I was. I am. Do you not see, she offered, how you're killing yourself? No differently than, than Lucas or your former doctor and his wife? Actually, a little different. You're doing it slowly, much more painfully, and completely without your noticing it. I didn't know what to say to any of that. Obviously, she was right, but I didn't like to think of it that way. What if I was, I said, throwing my hands in the air. I don't think it matters. No one cares. No one has the will to live anymore. Even I'm just holding on now out of spite. Did you just drive me out here to lecture me? No one wants to hear lectures, Abigail. We live in a world where you don't have to hear it anymore. I have every right to do what I want. I'm not hurting anyone. Abigail winced at that. You're hurting everyone who cares about you. She said this barely audible, and maybe I was sobering up a little bit, but I chose not to jump at the bait. I just sat there quietly. I'd heard sentiments like that before. So we sat there, sipping our coffees and staring at each other. All right, let's go see it, she suddenly announced, standing. I got up and followed, taking an extra gulp of coffee as I did. I followed her to the front door, where she was already buttoning up her coat. I slowly put mine on and rushed to get it buttoned, but my fingers were a lot slower and less coordinated than they used to be, so mostly I just hugged it closed around my body. Abigail was walking with such purpose, I actually struggled to keep up with her. I can't remember the last time I had chosen to trudge through snow. We were walking toward the barn. Back when my mother lived here, she said, this was a staple farm. You know, corn, wheat, that sort of thing. It was early on in the new era, and those crops were shipped globally to combat the famines and whatnot. I remembered those days, I thought, the early chaos. My line of work wasn't considered essential at that point by audiences alike, so I remember feeling a bitterness, a resentment against the farmers getting all of the support. Christine had tried to convince me to buy a farm, in fact, out in the outskirts, pretty much where we were right now. I couldn't stomach it, being away from the city. Small as it was, it had everything I needed. I felt comfortable there. Now, of course, that's all changed, Abigail continued. What with the population going down to what it is now, so we've rented out the fields and renovated the barn extensively. From the road, it still just looks like an old-fashioned farm. It's easier to keep up appearances. Are you saying this isn't a farm? I asked. Oh, it is, she replied, in a manner of speaking. We got to a white double door at the far end of the building. My sense of scale had been way off. This building was much bigger than it had seemed. I noticed that the door was thick, too. Steel, or more than steel? I, it looked like it was an unnecessarily strong door for a barn. And it was secure. At a keypad entry, multiple security cameras. So there are screens here, I remember thinking, chuckling to myself. 
Abigail waved at a camera and then turned to me patiently. I don't want to surprise them. The door unlocked with what sounded like a pressurized release. This was no ordinary door. This was no ordinary barn. We walked into an immaculate room, a cavernous room that had been subdivided with small spaces coming off the central open area. There was certainly nothing of a farm in there. It looked more like a high-tech lab. Frankly, it reminded me of where Christine had worked. We walked toward the middle of of the room and a young man emerged to meet us. I wasn't expecting anyone, so I flinched, which Abigail noticed. The two embraced and kissed. Jack, this is Thomas, my partner. Her husband, she means, Thomas replied, giving a curt wave. I was still uncomfortable, so I stood back. I was out of my element. My eyes started to focus, and I saw what looked like beds in one of the rooms branching off. I started to approach it, to walk toward the center of the complex. Then I heard something I hadn't heard in years. The laughter of children. To my left sat 15, 20 children. Honest-to-God kids. None of them could have been more than 11 or 12, which really shouldn't have been possible given the conventional orders. My first thought, if I'm honest, was that they were robots. We do have robots. There are lots of different kinds of robots in our world, but we don't have science fiction level androids, and, well, we certainly wouldn't shape any of them like a child, even if we did. They were sat at desks in short rows facing a large projection screen. It's all right, kids. This is the man I was telling you about. He's our new friend, Jack. What do we say? In unison, hello, Jack. I was speechless. I was facing a room full of living, breathing children. This room was illegal, to say nothing of it being immoral and unethical. Part of me wanted to yell in self-righteous anger. Another part wanted to run in case the military or the police tried to bust through that vault of a front door. But the force that won out was that I just stood there in awe. Before you say anything, Jack, every parent did, in fact, get the treatment. None of them were fertile in the least. No one broke any law here. Well, not every parent, said Thomas, as a short blonde girl ran up to him and Abigail and hugged their legs. She looked to be one of the younger children there. Jack, I want you to meet Victoria, Abigail said. Your granddaughter. Stories at the End of the World is a bi-weekly speculative fiction anthology series that explores humanity's relationship with hope and joy, but also with fear despair, and everything in between. This season we're exploring how and why to live at the end of the world. This episode was written and performed by Sean Lahane, audio mastering by David Newberry. You can find out more on the Facebook page. Just search for Stories at the End of the World. Subscribe to us and give the show a rating and a review, please. You won't regret it. And remember, don't give up.